Hello there, friends. I have the privilege this morning of introducing our speaker. Some of you may know him. Some of you may not. But I have some interesting facts to share with you about him. He grew up in the Philippines as a missionary kid, moved back to the United States as a sophomore in high school, somewhat reluctantly. He is an alumni of our university. And after he was an alumni, he had the chance to go on various missionary journeys with his wife, both to England and to Haiti. But there are some things that impacted him while he was here that then influenced the rest of his life. Some of his favorite classes were those in his Christian ministries tracks with his literature classes and Bible classes, specifically Greek, even though it was challenging. And he was very influenced by the church that he went to, the group of students that was there with him in his college group while well, they debated things that seemed important at the time and later ended up not being so important, as well as those things that in the moment they were all wrestling with and created their trajectory for what their ministries would look like today. Later on, he had the privilege of joining our faculty, as some of you already know, and has served in various capacities in our university, both here and in other places. And when I was talking to him about being able to introduce him today and just wanting him to really be another student to us, not because we are at the same level. We honor our administrators, of course, but that he was a student, and we get to learn from him as a fellow believer as well. And he told me, he said, I have to admit that I still see myself as a clueless freshman who somehow hung around long enough at this special place until, and probably, and against all good judgment, I was asked to sit in that corner office of the John Wesley Administration Building. So fellow students, please help me welcome another fellow student, our president, Dr. David Wright. Thanks, Amanda. That was a good, good job, thanks. Good morning, everybody. Sure is great to be with you and have the privilege of sharing some thoughts that the Lord's put on my mind and heart over the last year or two that I've been waiting for the right opportunity to share with you, and I, I felt like today was the day that I would do that. Um, I always enjoy getting to worship with you. I love our worship teams. They do such a phenomenal job musically, but even better is their spirit of worship before the Lord as they lead us into God's presence. That, that is a tremendous treasure and benefit that we have to share together in this community. Since I don't often have the opportunity to recognize you and your accomplishments and faculty and staff, I just want to take a couple minutes and recognize some folks that have been doing some pretty unusual things. Uh, first of all, I do want to thank uh, Dr. Rojas. I don't know if she's here, but uh, Dr. Rojas and the business division faculty and students for coming down to Indy on Monday to help us share the grand uh, opening of the DeVos School of Business. Uh, how many of you business students were, were down there for the, for the Indy event? Could you just stand a minute? Glad to have you guys come and join us. I think we had 75 maybe or 100 uh, folks that came for that. Thanks a lot for coming for that. How about the men's soccer team? League champions, all right. Keaton Albert, Crossroads League Player of the Year. Keaton, where, where is Keaton? Keaton, are you here today? There you are, stand up, buddy. Let's give him a hand. Great job. 
Just learned that some of you comm students who worked on that show called Cashed In, I don't know if any of you watched that, but they just received a, uh, a National College Broadcasting Award for that show. Congratulations. Anybody here who did that? All right. Good for you. Katie Wilson and Lucia Solis, NAIA doubles national champions. Are you guys here, ladies here? All right. There we go. Music division here is just so phenomenal. Todd Williams, Phoenix Park Kim, Michael Dennis. Todd and Phoenix, new CDs just out. Uh, Michael Dennis just represented us at the 150, 50th anniversary of an African-American composer. We don't often play a lot of his music or that music here, and I really appreciated Michael uh, representing us there and uh, did a presentation. Then Lisa Dawson, Tammy Huntington, Phoenix Park Kim doing the New Work Symposium. Any of you new music students in on that one, music uh, voice students? All right. That'll be in November. If you get a chance, that's going to be a, a really an important thing that happens uh, uh, here. Now, I won't get all of your names, so please forgive me, but I, homecoming, I got to visit with several of you that were, told me about your research in the Summer Hudson Research Institute. So Anna, Anna Kalb, Renee Sechrist, Chelsea Phillips, Blake Russell, Austin Greer. Uh, I was so amazed at what you all are doing in your science research through the Hudson Summer Research Institute. Sorry for those of you that I didn't get around to you, to your presentation and get your names. Uh, please forgive me for that. But would you give these guys a, a round of applause? They are doing some amazing work. If you haven't friended Professor Rod Crossman on Facebook, you ought to do that. He's doing an amazing job right now of, of surveying art alumni. Our art program for many, many years has been considered probably one of the top five Christian art programs in the country. Uh, and um, the, the brilliant alumni out of our art program, the things that are doing, uh, Professor Crossman is focusing on them and highlighting them on, on his Facebook page. So uh, if you haven't friended him and you're interested in seeing what some of our art alumni are doing, that is phenomenal work. So. I just want to say thanks to all of you who give the extra mile, go the extra mile to be great students, and certainly those of you who are here as faculty members and staff members, thank you so much for lifting up the name of Christ with the excellence that we pursue. So with that in mind, I want to turn to a passage of scripture and uh, use it as a basis to share with you about something that, as I say, has been on my heart now for a, for a year and a half, a couple of years. I think it's crucially important for us to consider as faculty, students, and staff at a great Christian university. And uh, you might want to pull out your phones or whatever if you don't already have them out texting. Uh, <laughs> and, and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 if, you have a, if you're reading, if you have a Bible on your phone there or your iPad or whatever. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom of God. That is our righteousness, holiness, 
and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, those who boast should boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you as that clueless freshman. (laughs) When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, Paul says. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. I've only served on a jury once, was in Southern California when I was working at the Azusa Pacific University as a dean. And I got the letter in the mail that told me to report for jury uh, selection. I was living uh, kind of on the north side of the LA basin in San Dimas. So on that, I think it was a Monday morning, I got in my car and drove down the, the 60 freeway down to South Central LA and, and went into the courtroom and went through that process. I don't know if you've done that before, but it's an interesting process. And uh, sat with a pool of jurors and had the the lawyers ask questions of us as potential jurors. And lo and behold, I got selected to be on a jury. It was a domestic abuse case. A young couple, probably been married maybe five years, in their mid-twenties. And the charge was that the gentleman had uh, attacked his wife and assaulted her in the home. And so that that was the trial. And, you know, it really was a fascinating process for me to get to see the, the, the criminal justice system work in that way. And uh, I, I don't really want to talk about the trial, but I want to talk about something interesting that happened while I was on that, tri- on that jury. One of the members of the jury was a transgendered person. And uh, it, that came to light in a rather awkward situation in jury selection process. But as we went through that, that jury selection process and sat and heard the trial, and then we went into the deli- deliberation room and we had time to deli- de- deliberate on, on, the, uh, on the verdict, and, and then we had some breaks together. In one of the breaks, this woman came to me. We happened to be beside each other. And she said, well, I guess I'm your enemy. And I said, Why? She said, because of who I am. And I said, you're not my enemy. I'd like to be your friend. It was a very short interchange. But a couple of things interested me about that. One was what she assumed about me because I was a Christian. And that came out in the jury selection process. The other was the ease of my response to her. I didn't grow up around transgendered persons. I didn't really even know what that was all about most of my life. And my church isn't particularly well adapted to working with and dealing with transgendered persons. I had never had much experience in that relationship. But it was not hard for me to say, I'm not your enemy. Where did that come from? 
how did, how did it come to be that on that summer day in South Central LA, when I encountered someone very different from me, whose life experience was completely different, and frankly for whom my understanding of the Bible uh, would, would make me say, I'm not sure that's the right life choice. Nevertheless, there was no real barrier in my heart towards her. See, I, I had a strange upbringing. I was very used to cross-cultural living, born and growing up in the Philippines. Cross-cultural living was not really a mystery to me. But I grew up in a rather withdrawn and ingrown church who really only fellowshiped with themselves. So when I came to Marion College, side of you, and sat where you sit, I was not at all prepared to be the friend of persons like this young woman. I didn't know how to relate my faith to those relationships. But something happened in that journey. So my question that I've been wanting to talk to you about is how are you going to make that journey? Because you see, our, our world is full, as you know, of very, very polarized debates about important issues. Whether it's immigration, human trafficking, wealth inequality, structured inequalities of access to privilege, whether they're gender issues or sexuality issues, this world is full of all kinds of debate. And you and I as believers enter that world in a certain way. And my question for you is, what are you going to learn about how to do that in these years that you spend with us here at Indiana Wesleyan University? What trajectory are you going to be on? Well, as I made that journey, I want to just share some insights that came to me over those years of making that journey for myself. I'll use a little bit of language from Reggie McNeil in his book called A Work of Heart. But I think there are three responses we can make to the culture around us as believers. One is what Reggie McNeil calls the refuge response to culture. Faced with an increasingly hostile culture, our natural response is to withdraw, to protect ourselves, to insulate ourselves against a world that seems increasingly alien and dangerous. It's a natural human response when faced with ambiguity or with uncomfortableness or with, or with danger or those who don't really like you or are not like you, to withdraw, to react. McNeil calls this the refuge response. This response often seeks to create a safe refuge from the world and to defend that refuge against attacks from those who would destroy it. Now make no mistake, there are times when we need refuge. A refuge can be a wonderful place. The desire for rest, for a quiet place where we can be in God's presence, in which we can open our minds and hearts to be vulnerable and honest and to explore truth in all of our disciplines, understanding God's word. There is a place for a refuge like that. These are important and worthy pursuits. One of the most magical places we've ever visited, Helen and I, is a little island of Lindisfarne, which is off the west coast of, of Scotland. 
right at the border of Scotland and England. And it's called Holy Island. On the, oh, sorry, that's on the east coast. On the west coast, you might have heard of the island of Iona, which is a similar Celtic Christian uh, island. But on Lindisfarne, on the other sense, in the, on, on the other side, in the 700s, there was a monastery on that little island. And that monastery was one of the centers of learning of all of Europe during very, very dark times. It was a refuge of learning and exploration. You might have heard, and if you haven't, go look it up, the Book of Kells. Don't Google it right now. <laughs> but, uh, but, but look that up. Illuminated manuscripts, brilliant art done in that refuge. But here's the problem. Unfortunately, as I went through my journey, there were too many times, too many instances when I saw the refuge mentality cause us as believers to assume that the world should be avoided as a dangerous sphere of human activity that threatened our Christian life and culture. Too many times I saw us buying into this idea that God works in the church among believers and the world outside has spun out of control and God has removed himself from that world. And that belief too often for us authorized our withdrawal from a non-Christian culture in which we lived and from the people around us who were different from us. And over the years, I noticed that many of my fellow believers acted as if God's basic disposition to people outside the church was one of anger. And therefore, we as Christians were justified to have an angry response to those around us. And God knows there is plenty to be angry about in this world. The more I immersed myself and was around that way of thinking, I realized that it left me not satisfied. I realized that our goal too often became defense and preservation of the way of life in our refuge. And we started sizing everybody else up, parsing their language, asking, are they really pure? Do they really belong in our community? Can we really trust them? And I didn't like what that did in my spirit. So I became increasingly dissatisfied with a refuge response to culture. But I saw another response as well. McNeil calls it the accommodation response to culture. I've observed that while some Christians withdraw Others accommodate themselves to the culture they live in. Christian faith comes to adjust itself to the prevailing norms of the day. The message of the cross begins to recede into the background, and people stop talking about sin and repentance and salvation. The Bible becomes just another human book to be mined for ideas and inspiration and to be rejected and re-explained when it doesn't fit with our preferred cultural narratives. Too many times as I interacted and I saw the with refuge mentality and I looked for other ones, I saw this one. My fellow believers accommodating the gospel to what was prevalent in the day so that the message of the cross was exchanged for the message of the marketplace 
and our faith became a kind of civil religion, easily espoused and propagated by those who were most responsible for the culture of the day. You see, cultural accommodation is not a matter of liberalism and conservatism. Both liberals or progressives and conservatives both can adjust the gospel to their prevailing culture. Cultural accommodation happens when we exchange the radical power of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the platitudes of our popular culture. And over the years, I've noticed fellow believers of mine who would look into their faith, look into our faith, and pull out truths that seem to fit well and affirm the current values of the culture or that seem to support the intellectual and ethical fashions of the elites of the day. Those who hold power to mediate our culture. And I noticed that when we began to accommodate ourselves to the prevailing culture, we no longer challenged ourselves with the radical call of Christ. We felt comfortable with moral instruction that fit well with the prevailing norms of the day. But we became uncomfortable when the claims of the Bible began to rub up against our assumptions and our desires. We use language like, we will just be a presence. Without realizing that mere presence in a pluralistic society has little redemptive value. And I found myself increasingly uncomfortable with an accommodation gospel. I don't know why the lights came on then. (laughs) You still with me? One of my good friends, Richard Waugh, is the leader of the Wesleyan Methodist Church of New Zealand. My daughter lived in New Zealand for about seven years and married a Kiwi, and I have one of the most wonderful... There we go. I don't know what's going on. I think the Holy Spirit has something to say to us guys this morning, (laughs) so stick with me. I, I have a wonderful Kiwi grandson. I was standing in line in Durban, South Africa at the World Methodist Council with my friend Richard. My friend Richard and his fellow colleagues who are pastors in the Wesleyan Church left the Uniting Church of New Zealand about 20 years ago, 15 to 20 years ago. They could no longer fellowship in that church. And at the time, the thing that really was led them to to leave the church was the decision that was made by that church to ordain uh, gay ministers. So I was standing in the line here in Durban, South Africa, ready to walk with Richard, holding the banner of the New Zealand Wesleyan Methodist Church, along with hundreds and hundreds of representatives of Methodist churches around the world. And standing in front of us was a young man Uh, who struck up a conversation with me, and and I said, I'm representing the Wesleyan Methodist Churches of New Zealand. And he said, I'm the reason they left the Uniting Church. Now, that's an awkward situation. (laughs) 
You know, Richard's here, I'm here, and here's this young man. And he said, I was the person who was ordained. It was interesting to watch Richard and that young man talk to each other. You know what Richard told me? He said, David, it really wasn't so much the decision about gay marriage and the ordination of a gay person that made us say we had to leave that church. He said the issue was they had long since abandoned their belief in the deity of Jesus Christ and in the authority of Scripture. And more and more what we saw was a church adrift without any anchor. And we simply couldn't be there anymore. So what I want to say to you guys this morning, ladies, you've entered history at a hinge point. And you can be assured that God is not caught off guard by what's going on in the culture around us. He is at work, and he calls us to a third response to the culture. E. Stanley Jones said, Through the gospel, there is a sensitizing of the soul and a universalizing of the sympathies of the sensitized soul. We, Christians, carry the cross of faithful engagement in our culture. So in the moments left to me, could I outline for you what I hope happens to you as you make this journey? And it comes out of these words of Paul to the Corinthian believers. We aren't only choosing between a refuge response and an accommodation response to the gospel. There is the response of faithful, Bible-centered, Jesus-honoring engagement with culture. I would like to commend that to you. You see, Paul assumed that Christians were in the world to point the world to Jesus Christ. He assumed that many in the world would come to Christ if they only could know him. Paul believed that God is already at work in the world, wooing people to himself. You see, Paul's practice was to engage the world. For us as evangelists, for us as world changers, association does not equal corruption. Can I say that again? Association does not equal corruption. God sends us into the world to engage the world faithfully, to be with people who need to know Jesus. Redemption requires not just presence in the world, but engagement. We Christians are bridge builders. Paul's conviction was that God often chose to work from the margins, not from the positions of power in a culture. Did you catch that? That's what he says to the Corinthians. We weren't the, the elites in the culture. We didn't come with the power of, of the popular culture. We came from the margins. You see, the problem is when you are the cultural elite, you got there by being powerful, and you are so enamored and so captivated by the power that got you to the center that you have no room for the power of God. 
It's the people living on the margins who know they have nothing to offer except the power of God working through them. Paul's interaction in the world. Here's one that I think is interesting. His interaction to engage the world caused him fear and trembling. It was not easy. So if you and I fear and tremble when we engage the world, Paul was there before us. But it didn't stop him. He offered a gospel of hope and a gospel of help. He spoke into a world that deeply needed a sense of human significance and meaning. You see, when a culture removes God from the center, the significance of human life disappears. It takes several generations. But when a culture removes God from the center of their culture, over time it becomes a culture of death. And there is no significance to human life. And yet we're born for the need, with the need for that significance. And Paul's deepest hunger was for the power of God to be demonstrated in the lives of Christians so that the culture around them would see something supernaturally compelling so that their faith would rest on the power of God. This is the problem I have with digital media. You see, we want to engage the world through words that we post on Twitter and Facebook and Snapchat and Wherever, yik yak. <laughs> but it is the power of God working in our lives that transform the world. It is not necessarily the power of our words. But do you remember that? You're not going to win spiritual battles by posting some pithy statement on Twitter. You're going to win spiritual battles by the power of the Holy Spirit working through you. And friends, my time is gone, but here's what I want to call you to. If you're looking for an easy way, this is not your calling. If you want the way of refuge or the way of accommodation, God cannot use you to change this world. But if you want the way of faithful engagement so that the power of the Holy Spirit flows through you, God will lead you to time after time when you will have to put him before yourself. And God will use you. My prayer is that you join me in that journey. And in that way, those of us in light of you become people who make the world a better place. Holy Spirit, Take these words and these truths and minister them to our hearts. We're all on a journey. You love every one of us here. Help us to love each other, to share together in this journey of becoming like you, to bring along with us those who are like us and those who are not like us, those who feel like they belong and those who feel like they don't belong. Lord, wrap your arms around this community and help us to wrap our arms around each other together make our journey into the kingdom of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.